morning. It's great to be with you guys today. Um, kids, make sure you grab uh, these packets up here. There are coloring books. There are crayons. There are activity sheets. So make sure you come up and grab those. Um, and you can come up and get them anytime. So if you're busy with something else now, but you want them later, feel free to get up and, uh, and grab those at any point. Um, we are uh, in week two. We started last week a new series uh, in the book of Hebrews called Greater. Um, we are doing this series, if you remember uh, 2019, what we said at the very beginning of the year is that this year was about pursuing Jesus together. And uh, the reality is you can't really do that unless you know exactly who he is. And that's why we're looking at Hebrews, because Hebrews is a New Testament letter that talks about Jesus in terms that maybe no other New Testament letter talks about him. Um, and the point of, of the letter that's written to uh, this community is, uh, is to encourage them. Because if you remember from last week, this is a first century uh, community that is struggling. They're struggling with fear. They're struggling with doubt. They're struggling with discouragement. And they're finding it incredibly hard to follow Jesus in a world that has a lot of different competing religions and competing philosophies. And they're ready to pack it up and go home. They're literally, they're ready to, to turn in their Jesus card and go back to their Judaism, back to the way things uh, used to be. And the author is going to continue to tell them, look, if, if you want to face your fear, if you want to overcome your discouragement, if you want to doubt your doubts, then the way you do that isn't by looking back. The way that you do that is by looking at Jesus. And what you find when you look at Jesus is someone who's greater than all of those things and can overcome them. Um, so last week we talked about Jesus as the God who speaks, if you remember, from, from verse, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And this week, uh, the author is going to talk about Jesus as being a brother. And we're going to look at what that means uh, for us. So if you're going to follow along, we're in Hebrews 2. And uh, we're going to look at verses 5 to 18. I think we do have the, the verses up on the screen. And uh, this is what Hebrews 2 says. It is not to angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God, has, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, 
here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he has been made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a lot there, isn't there? Um, I, I wish we could get into every facet and detail of this, but the big idea that you need to see is that the author of Hebrews is, is speaking of Jesus in terms of him being a family member. And he said he's not ashamed to call his brothers, and he, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And, and that means that Jesus, if we think about uh, being in relationship with God as being part of God's family, that makes Jesus our older, greater brother. And there are a whole bunch of implications of what that could mean for us, but there are three implications in particular, three characteristics or traits of what Jesus brings as a brother that kind of come out in this long, sort of complicated passage. And so these are the three things that we're going to talk about. That Jesus is the brother who's involved with us. He's engaged. He's involved in our lives. He's the brother who is victorious for us. And he's the brother who is proud of us. He's the brother who's involved with us. He's victorious for us. And he's proud of us. All right, so he's involved with us. What does that mean? If you remember last week when we talked about Jesus and, and God, didn't it use like this enormous language to talk about what God was like? Like this over-the-top like greatness about what God was like, that He's above the angels and He's creator of the universe and He holds the universe together with the power of His Word. This, this enormity, right? And yet this chapter, the author like switches, <laughs> like flips a switch, and now suddenly he talks about Jesus as being this sort of intimate, involved, engaged, present brother. It's like the exact opposite. He's high and exalted above every name, and yet he's not removed from our circumstances. And it's the opposite of what we would expect, right? Because um, what inevitably happens when someone goes from obscurity to fame? Like if it, like the, the baseball player from like this little podunk town suddenly becomes an all-star on the greatest, you know, for, you know, for the greatest team. Or, or the, this person of no notoriety becomes the most famous movie star. Yeah, right. The, his, his value goes up. Um, but he, or somebody who, no influence whatsoever suddenly becomes into a position of tremendous power and influence in the government or in the corporate world. What inevitably happens to those people? 
What's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, opportunity for failure, that's for sure, because they, they, something's changed about them. But the, the, the biggest thing that's changed about them is that they, in, in almost every case, they no longer associate with the people that knew them when they were nothing. Right? In fact, the, here's how you know this. Because the greatest compliment that you can pay a famous person is what? They never changed. They're, just, they're the same person that they were when they grew up on the block and, and you know, we wiped that kid's nose. And they're in this high position and yet they're still approachable. So that's the greatest compliment that you can pay somebody who's transitioned to a position of greatness. Now think of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest single individual who has ever existed. He has a name above all names. And so you would think that because he has that name, because he's so high, because he's so majestic, that would make him unapproachable. But it doesn't. See, with Jesus, he... He doesn't just, uh, you don't just have access to him through his baseball card. He doesn't just phone home every once in a while on holidays. He doesn't just look down from his lofty position and make decrees. He comes down, and he's touchable, and he understands our condition. And this is all throughout the passage. I mean, verse 11 both the one who makes people holy and those, and those who are made holy are what? They're of the same family. Verse 13, and again he says, here I am and the children God has given me. He stands with us. Verse 14, he too shared in their humanity. Verse 17, for this reason he was made like them, fully human in every way. Verse 18, because he himself suffered. He's like us. He, he's involved with us. He's engaged on our behalf. Jesus, He comes so close to our condition that He doesn't just make Himself vulnerable. He doesn't just put His life at risk for us. He gives His life over for us. He doesn't just speak in, in announcements or pronouncements from His throne in heaven. He's so close that when He speaks to you, He has to whisper. Otherwise, He'll blow you away. Like, that's crazy, right? The God of the universe would come so close and know us so intimately because he's the brother who's engaged with us. But he doesn't just know about our situation and our circumstances. He, he's also the brother who's victorious over them. He's our victorious brother. And if you look at the chapter, um, kind of in its in its in its whole, you, you see kind of this flow to it. That, that human beings, us, we're, we were made for a purpose. We haven't fulfilled that purpose and that God's doing something about it. So what purpose were we made for? The writer quotes Psalm 8 when, when, it's, when he's thinking about what our purpose is, when he says, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And So l- let me ask this question. Well, and then it goes on and says, in putting everything under them, God has left nothing that is not subject to them. 
So let me ask this question. What does it mean that God has put everything under our feet? That everything is subject to us. What does that tell you about our purpose? You get, an, you get to answer that. <laughs> yeah, we, we get to rule. Yeah, he left it in our care. It's under our authority. It's under our responsibility. See, this means, just as Genesis 1 and 2 says, that when God created this great world, He gave it over to us as His image bearers to care for it, to cultivate it, to nurture it. In other, in other words, we're, we're to be stewards. A steward is just is someone who takes care of something on behalf of its real owner. This past week, uh, I would say we, but it's really Mandy, was charged with watching over our neighbor's cats. Now, thankfully, we're stewards and not owners of cats. And that's all we will ever be of cats. Um, but we, we, were, we were charged with feeding them every day and making sure that their needs were cared for because there was a day when the cats' rightful owners were coming home to reunite with those cats and, and, and whether or not we took good care of them was going to be shown either to be true or not to be true. In the same way, that, that's what it means for us to be stewards over what is rightfully belonging to God. That it's our responsibility, in a sense, to, to lead this world, to care for this world in such a way where justice and peace flow like rivers. Where, that, that leads to the universal flourishing of every single human animal, and even the creation itself. That's our God-given responsibility as people who are made in God's image. And when the writer says that we were crowned with glory and honor, you, you would put a crown on uh, anyone who is in a position to make decisions on behalf of others. And so other people would look at that individual and go, that person is crowned with glory and honor, which means that they have responsibility over our city or over our region or over our country. Now, so let me ask you the question. Does the world look like a place of peace and justice and unity and universal prosperity and care? No. What's that? Alma, yeah. We're so close, right? Just give us ten more years and I think we got it, right? No, what? What is true of the way that the world operates? Yeah, we, it seems like it, right? We're, every step we take in that direction, it seems like we take two back. Every step towards unity and peace, and we think, oh man, we're so close to it. Suddenly war breaks out. And groups like ISIS happen. And, you know, and one government suddenly... Ha- acts hostile towards another one. The, the moment we move towards um, prosperity, and we think, man, we have enough resources to take care of people's needs, then we learn about the fact that millions are dying from starvation and lack of clean water. And, I mean, I hope you wrestle with this and think about the fact that there is a, an incongruity between the world that God created as it 
it to be in the world as it exists today. And now here's the question. Why? Because isn't it true, I mean, anybody that you talk to seriously who's really wrestled with these things, the, the immediate visceral response that you have when you're faced with the reality that the world doesn't look the way it should is that you, in a, in a sense, blame the Creator for those injustices, don't you? I have, and I know whenever I talk to people about these things that are seriously wrestling with them, that's their immediate response. Well, if God was such a good, loving, caring, generous, gracious God, why in the world are their kids starving today? Isn't that his fault? Now, here's the thing. Um, Do you ever hear the adage, if you point one finger at somebody else, you're pointing three back at yourself? Read verse 8. In putting everything under them, us, God left nothing that is not subject to us. Yet at present, we do not see everything subjected to us. Do you know there's enough food on the planet to feed the world seven times over? Do you know we have solved the issue of how to provide clean water to every individual on the planet? It's not a matter of whether or not it can happen. It's a, whether, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a question of the willingness of those that have been put in the position to make those decisions about whether it happens. There's nothing that is not that God has not given over to us to be subject to us. And so we have to point the finger at ourselves. Now here's here's the other question. Why then do we have such a hard time with this? Why can't we seem to just get along? Why can't we just seem to be generous? Why can't we, you know, and here's the other, you know, instead of blaming, you know, my political party, Humanly speaking, I'll blame the other political party. Or I'll, you know, if I'm poor, I'll blame the rich. If I'm rich, I'll blame the poor. If I, you know, if I'm from one country, I'll blame a different country. And we 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 shift and we shift and we shift the blame. I think if you if you're reading this correctly, though, we have to you got to put yourself in the category and figure out why is it that not just they're at fault, but we are at fault. What is it that's going on in our hearts collectively as the human race that creates this problem? And that leads us to Genesis 3. And we learn what, I love what what Tim Keller calls the great irony of history. He says this, when we humans decided to be our own lords and masters, to serve ourselves rather than to serve and worship God, The irony is that we cannot even master ourselves, let alone the world we were created to steward. Doesn't that ring true for you? We can't even master our emotions. Like, they dominate us. We can't even master our schedules. Time seems to slip through our fingers. We can't even master our own households, let alone the geopolitical reality. Our children rebel against us. How in the world can we steward the world rightly when we can't even live our own lives in order? We're a mess. And that's why the world is always slipping out from under our control. 
socially, it's a place of injustice and, and poverty. Physically, we have natural disasters. Politically, we have war and hostility. Nothing seems to be going the way that it should. Doesn't it feel like we're on a roller coaster that's like lost its brakes? We have no idea where it's headed. The Bible says this. I, people always why would God do this, right? And throughout history, what the Bible says is that God allows the world, he allows the world to feel the strain of its rebellion against him. In other words, he's turning us over to the chaos so that we can see what it looks like when we run the show without him. If you're honest, I mean, wouldn't you say that about your own life? The days, the months, the years, the decades where you try to run your own life and run the show on your own and do it apart from God and His help and His grace, aren't those some of the most chaotic times and periods of your life? Wouldn't that also be true collectively of the human race and the world that we're supposed to be over? He's turning us over. And yet, the biggest problem in the world and the biggest problem of our own hearts according to verse 14 and 15, is death and the fear of death. That's like the, the cornerstone of the issue of what's happening in the world is that we're in bondage to the fear of death. There is this fantastic quote that I found um, by Leo Tol- Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace. The kids know him because they call him Leo Toy Store from the Charlie Brown movie. Um, when Charlie Brown is trying to do a book report on that massive book that he wrote. Um, but, but Leo's, he, he, after turning 50, he's reflecting on his life, and he says this, Something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part kept increasing. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength. And yet I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only I will not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I've written or done. Why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it all make if I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? And so, I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my life as a whole. But what was so surprising is that we fail to see this. For a time, it is possible to live intoxicated with life, but as soon as one is sober... It is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud. How could I have been told, how how often I have been told, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't even think about it. Just live. But I can no longer do that. Isn't that the most articulate midlife crisis you've ever heard? (laughs) What is a midlife crisis? 
It, it's coming to a point of sobriety where you go, what if my entire life is meaningless? What if it's all a fraud? See, it's a moment of sobriety. Now, here's the tragedy, is that what happens so often when you hit that moment of sobriety is that after the sobriety fades, you just find something else to be intoxicated by. And so you trade one car for a faster one. And you trade one job for a better one. And you trade one man for a better one. Or one woman for another one. Or you trade one house for another one. Or one church for another one. Now why would you do that? It's because you're medicating the fear of death. You're, you're trying to be intoxicated by something that can't take away what you know to be true. In fact, there is no earthly medicine that can take away that fear. And so, because of that, you're in bondage to it. And we're in bondage to it. We're in bondage to it because we're enslaved to, to, to earn more and travel more and succeed more and hoard more. And don't you see, the whole reason that the world doesn't have prosperity and peace and justice and unity is because everybody on the planet is trying to convince yourself that your life matters. The reason you can't be generous is because we can't let go of the things that we have because we're afraid of death. And the things we have medicate us from that fear. And look at every area of life and see if it's not true. Unless you get to the root of what causes it and what solves that fear, you're always going to be in bondage to it. You're always going to be under the influence of it. We were made to have the world under us, and yet we're under the world. That's what's happening. Now, what's God going to do about it? And that's verse 9. What God is doing about it is that, yes, we don't see the world the way that God intended it to be. But then verse 9 says, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. He's now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, before the author was quoting Psalm 8, where it says, what is man that you're mindful of him? But now he reinterprets that entire passage through Jesus, and suddenly it starts to make sense that Jesus was the one who was made lower than the angels because he suffered death and he died. And that it was through his suffering that he's crowned with glory and honor. And now he redeems the world through what he suffered. And so Psalm 8 may, when we look at it, you go, I don't know if that makes sense for us. It doesn't seem like everything is under our control. But it is true of Jesus because he was victorious over death. And what we're told is now he reigns over the whole world. And then verse 10 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. That word pioneer is archagos. It's, 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 it means like trailblazer. It could mean champion. And I, we don't wage this kind of warfare anymore, but there, there was a time in which... Um, when, when two nations went to battle with one another, rather than just like both of the armies going at it and like there being, you know, thousands of people that had to die, um, they would send one individual. And the other nation would send one individual. 
And based on the result of that encounter, one nation would be either victorious or defeated. And that was your champion. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, that's exactly what it's talking about. They sent David out into battle against Goliath as the nation's champion. If David won, they won. If David lost, they lost. That's the way it was. And what that means for you as a member of that army, if you're watching your champion go out into battle, it means that in the case of David who slays the giant, that, that David faced down a foe that you could never beat. That he was your champion. And the Bible says that, that Jesus is a champion who goes out into battle for everyone who calls him Lord and brother. That if you're part of Jesus' family, he goes out onto the battlefield and doesn't just face a nine-foot giant. He faces death itself. And he overcomes it. See, that's why verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You remember on Easter when we celebrated the fact that Jesus died and rose again? And what that, what that means is that Jesus blew a hole in death. That he went out into this, this unconquerable wall that nobody has ever climbed, nobody has ever gone through, and he blew a hole straight through it. And the empty tomb means that the death of death itself. And it's talking about the fact that the resurrection breaks the power of death. It can break your fear of death because it broke it forever. And Jesus Christ came back from death. That means when you see Him, when you come to Him as a brother, when He says to you, come and follow Me, that removes the fear of death. He takes you through it. See, we think that Jesus came to, to, to start a religion. And He didn't. He came to ransom a family. He came to set his family free. Can, can you imagine if your family was in bondage to someone in a foreign nation, if they were enslaved there and they could never get themselves out? I mean, what lengths would you go through to rescue that, those people, that person, the, the people that you love the most? See, I, I was talking to my, um, way back now, <laughs> seems like, it, it was longer ago than I realized, but I was talking to my neighbor who loved the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. You remember that movie? Where his daughter is taken in Paris and then he's got to track him down. He's, I have a very specific skill set. You know that, that movie? I will find you. And when I find you, you know, it's like... <laughs> it, I'm, and he, there's no doubt in his mind that he is going to find his daughter and, and do battle against everyone that's taken captive. And, and, and I, you know, I've watched that movie several times. I would talk to my neighbor about it. Like, what do you love about it? Well, and you could tell he's like, I, well, if that happened to me, you know, I would do the same thing. And I, I would, I would want to be just like him. And I'd want to go. And I, I'd want to get him out. And I just love that part. And I, I think all of us would want to do that. But if you think about it in reality, we're much more like the daughter 
who's held captive than we are the person who has the skill set to get them out. But there is one person who has that skill set, and that's Jesus himself. In fact, he's the only one with that skill set to do battle against a foe that has held us captive our entire lives. He's our victorious champion brother. And the last, he's our brother who's proud of us. He's a brother who's proud of us. Uh, Verse 11 and 12 says, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are in the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. In fact, it says, he says of us, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Now, you have no idea how significant that is. Um, see, if you're an American, um, if you want to impress someone as an American, what's your go-to? What do you emphasize above all else as an American? You emphasize your accomplishments. You pull out your resume, and you talk about the things that you've done and the places you've been and, and the people that, you, that you've schmoozed. And you, you talk about all the things that you've done. Here's one thing you don't do. If you want to impress somebody else, you don't talk about your ancestors. You don't talk about the fact that your grandfather was a great individual or that you have all these aunts and uncles and the fact that they've done amazing things. No, you don't put what they've done. You've put what you've done. But if you're from another culture, if you're from a non-Western white culture, if you're from some other part of the world, you realize that you're not just the product of your own accomplishments and decisions. You're the product of a family. And those people have had a great deal of influence over what you're like and what you're able to do. And so when you talk about yourself and, and you're, you're trying to emphasize you know, your, your, your resume, you don't just talk about yourself, you talk about them as well. Well, I'm the son of so-and-so, and here's what they did too. And he was the son of so-and-so, and that's what they did. See, in ancient times, as in many parts of the world, when you wanted to recommend yourself to someone, you talked about your ancestors. You wouldn't just give people your resume. You would give them your genealogy. You'd give them the the great people that came before you. And and also, just like a resume, if, if you wanted to make yourself look good, you would include the people that looked good, right? And if you, if you wanted to make sure that you didn't look bad, you would cut out the people that looked bad. And so I'm going to emphasize this person, but not this person, because that person, oh, they weren't so great. So I'm just going to forget about them, and I'm going to tell you about this man who did great things, right? Do you see how incredible it is, then, that the way that Jesus gets introduced to us, the, the way that he's talked about, at the very beginning of the New Testament in Matthew 1, which is written to recommend Jesus to other people, that he's the Messiah, and it starts with the genealogy. Now, some of you think there's just names in there for no particular reason. You're like, can I just get past this to the, like, the better stuff? You know, But it means something. 
It's a recommendation about who Jesus is and what he's like. Now, here's the incredible part. Look who's included in that genealogy. It's not just the best and brightest and the all-stars and the, and the people that have lived incredible lives. It, in ancient times, what was so amazing is that it included women who were never included in genealogies. And not just any women, but women like Tamar, who was a survivor of incest. And Bathsheba, who was guilty of adultery. And Rahab, who was a prostitute. And Mary, who was a single unwed mother. And by moral standards of the day, Jesus should be ashamed of these people. They should be expunged from Jesus' resume. And yet we see Jesus giving them a place of honor. Do you know what that means? It means it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, when you're adopted into his family, Jesus becomes the older brother who rejoices over you, who sings your praises in the assembly. In other words, he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. And it doesn't matter what anyone else's opinion has been about you. It doesn't matter what your parents' opinion has been. It doesn't matter what your sibling's opinion, what your boss's opinion, what your girlfriend or boyfriend from high school said about you, or your ex-wife or ex-husband. The entire world could be filled with shame when they think of your name, and still Jesus would be proud of you and proud to call you his brother, his sister. Let me tell you what that, that messes you up when you believe that. That rewires everything from your brain to your heart, and it releases you from any kind of fear that you have over what people might think about you. When you believe that to your core, you are completely off of, of, of the enslavement of what other people and their, 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 their understanding of what you're like. Because you're like, what in the world does it matter if I have the king's approval? Jesus, the greatest individual who ever lived, is not ashamed to call me his most valued, beloved brother, and he's singing my praises even today in heaven before the angels of God. Why would I care about what my boss thinks? I can love that person and serve them with, with my work and my time and my effort, but I'm not enslaved to what they think of me. Jesus came to be your brother. If you're in his family, he is your older brother which means he's engaged with even the smallest details of your life. He gains victory over death to set you free, and he's not ashamed to call you his family. Now, have I said anything new to you? Some of you, uh, this was all new information. And you're re wrestling with whether or not you believe this, and that's good. Keep, keep wrestling. Maybe this was new information. But, for many of you, everything that I've said in the last 40 minutes, none of it's new information. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, um, what, do you, 
what do you mean do I believe it? Of course I believe it. I know it. I've, I've been taught these things since Sunday school. You know, I didn't ask whether you know it, but I am asking whether you believe it, and there's a huge difference. You want to know why? Because you can believe, you can know things that you have no belief over. I can, I can know that I have $10 million in the bank account, but if I don't believe that I can access it, then it makes no difference to my life whatsoever. And in the same way, you can, in a sense, know these things your entire life and yet still be racked with fear and discouragement. Which means you don't believe it yet. Maybe this is the day of belief for you. And I think Jesus wants that for you. So what does it mean to believe? Well, think about it this way. Are you afraid? Are you filled with fear? And what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of the future? Are you afraid of what's going to happen tomorrow or next month or next year or 20 years from now? Are you afraid of the diagnosis that may come? Or the bankruptcy that may come. Belief in Jesus as your brother means belief that Jesus is the brother who's gone into the future for you and is standing there waiting for you. He's even standing on the other side of death, so not even death can hold you from him. And because he's gone there and he's secured it and he's waiting for you, it means if Jesus is your brother and you know all this and you believe all of this, then you walk into the future not with fear and dread. You walk into it with joy and peace because you, you know there is no day ahead where Jesus is not already waiting for you. Do you believe it? Maybe you're not afraid of the future. Maybe you're afraid of the past. And you think, you know, there are some things that I've done that are going to define me forever. There is a bankruptcy. There is a diagnosis. There is a divorce. There is a mistake. There is a failure. There's a series of failures, and I'll never overcome them. Don't you know that if Jesus is your older brother, he not only knows about it, but he's already dealt with it on the cross? He's dealt with it to such a degree and He's declared it to be finished forever to such a degree that it can never be held against you and His family evermore. When, when Jesus sings your praises, if you're in Him today before the angels of heaven, He doesn't, think, he, he doesn't sing, yes, this is my daughter or this is my sister, but remember what she did. No, she, He never does that. He, he always says, this is my sister, this is my brother, and remember what I've done for them. You're free. Are you discouraged? Maybe you're not fearful, but you're discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged when you think of temptations. And you think, you know, th these things were, I knew that they were true of me when I first came to Christ, but here's the problem. I keep doing things to shame the family name. You know, I, I realize that Jesus forgave me when I prayed a prayer at nine years old, but the problem is I keep sinning. 
And I keep doing things that if they were to come to light would be the end of me. Don't you realize that there's good news for you that Jesus suffered every temptation that you will ever go through? And everywhere and every place where you failed, He was victorious? And that means if you believe it, that, that, that He is your victorious brother who, who never shames you when you fail again. But every time you fall in defeat, He wants to be your restoration. He's waiting on the other side of your failure to restore you back to Himself again. And not only that, but the next time that you fail, He wants to be the victory where you've been the failure. And so you walk into that temptation that has defeated you a thousand times before, but this time when you face that same temptation, you face it not on your own, but you give it immediately over to Jesus and say, I can't win without you. I'll never win without you, but I realize that if I give it to you, you can win for me. Would you do that for me, Jesus? And he's faithful to do it. Are you discouraged? Are you discouraged over troubles? You need to believe that your brother, who today has the world under his feet, doesn't promise to take troubles away from your life, but promises on his life that he will walk with you through every trouble. That he's not far away shouting instructions about how to get through life from heaven. He's whispering his love to you in the midst of the suffering because he's near to the brokenhearted. He's the embodiment of Psalm 34.18 that says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, you have a brother who's had his heart broken. You, you have a, a God whose heart was broken as he watched his son being broken on the cross. You have a brother who was rejected. You have a brother who was imprisoned. You have a brother who was crushed in body and in spirit. And because of that, He knows what it's like to be in your shoes. He knows what it's like to walk through your circumstances. And He doesn't just know, but He walks with them now through, with you by His Spirit. He's there. It's a question of belief. There's a couple different ways to respond to Jesus as a brother. Um... How many of you have an older brother? Can I ask that? I am an older brother. I don't have an older brother, but I'm told this is true of us older brothers. Okay? So realize I may be stepping into a landmine here because um, I'm speaking on, you know, through the, the experiences of other people. But um, older brothers tend to be the people that want to go out and sort of like conquer the world. And sometimes it's easy to like, resent them for it because you think like they're greater than me it's it's easy to look at jesus and go man he's 
Like, he's so much greater than me in every way. How can I not resent him for it? The fact that he's won where I've failed, the fact that he's overcome where I tend to be, you know, overcome myself. How, how can I not resent him? And there are two responses to Jesus as a brother. Either you'll resent him because he's greater than you, or you'll embrace him because you realize he's greater for you. And that's the difference. Will you walk out of here saying, that's great about Jesus. I'm really glad that he's so much greater than me. Or will you walk out of here realizing that he's the brother that you take home and that he's greater for you and that he wants to be with you? I pray it's the second. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus and that he was made lower than the angels, lower than us. It, Philippians 2 said he became nothing. But that because he was obedient, even obedient to death on a cross, the shame of all shames, the torture of all tortures, that you have crowned him with glory and honor and a name that is above every name. That he is victorious in everything. And, and he doesn't just show us how great he is. He offers his greatness to us. God, we may know these things, but chances are we're not operating in belief. And that's where we need the Holy Spirit. Would you come and push these truths into our hearts? Whisper these things in our ears so that we might walk in belief. And we know that when we walk in belief, our lives are going to be changed. And so we entrust that change to you, and we will give the credit to you when it happens. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.